Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Sadia Bhatti. And I'm Brian Kodik. And I'm Joel Dahlquist. And we are your co-hosts for another episode and another season of the Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% fresh faces. We are back from holiday, all of us. Welcome back, guys. Welcome back. Welcome back. And Tanned thank you. And ready. Technically not correct because I'm going on holiday like tomorrow. But I think when this airs, presumably I will have been on holiday. But I don't look fresh right now. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to say anything, uh, Joel, but we'll wait for better, a better visage <laughs> when you come back. Well, at least we're back from a long break. Which, you can, which we can tell as well. I love how this is still like an indie uh, improvised operation. Like, wh- which cable am I going to use? Oh, I have a new <laughs> microphone. Where, where's my headset? How do you record? And every, I'm sure you can tell from the quality of things, dear listener, that we are still just trying to figure things out as we go along. It's, um, it, it was a similar thing when I, when I was at Mannheim. I went on to the convent for six months and I came back and I didn't know my my passcode to get into the building i had forgotten it i had forgotten my computer password you just once you're out of the context for too long you just forget things i forgot the floor or my (laughs) i hadn't been in for so long i forgot which floor it was yeah because in paris it's fourth in here it's 14th and i was like wait what wait which floor am i on see (laughs) it's so embarrassing Well, where in the world are you now, Sadia? Oh, well, I'm still uh, well, back in the UK and uh, recording uh, from home. Although I have started going back in the office now uh, more regularly. What about you? I'm in London at home, not going into the office. Um, I will be here for the foreseeable. And I've just got a new ergonomic chair, which way too late in the game to be doing it. But I finally buckled and I'm setting myself up much nicer to be able to spend longer hours in front of the computer without having back pain. Joel, where are you? I am uh, in my office in London, but I'm also realizing now that what we don't have to do is over Zoom anymore. I mean, there are obvious advantages to that. And I guess there's a larger discussion to be had similar to the world of arbitration. Should we keep doing this or should we do it in person? But we are not that far apart. At least some of us sometimes for this upcoming season could be together in the same room, I think. Brian and you and I are probably, I have my bike. I could be in your home office in like 10 minutes, probably. Well, let's do it. I mean, if Paris Arbitration Week can do it, we can do it. Exactly. I, that's in full swing, yeah, or that's finished it. now. Um, but they, there was a lot of um, in-person panels and conferences that I was pleasantly surprised to see and equally um, uncomfortable to see like, that people are flying in. And- a cruise... Also, a cruise on the Seine, 
so you're you're stuck with your with your mates for a, a few hours. Did they have a cruise? Get they out did of a the boat? boat. Oh, yeah, wow. they had a cruise. Yeah, that mm-hmm. reminds me of the first yeah, like I, big crisis of COVID was that cruise ship where everyone was stuck on the cruise ship <laughs> and they didn't let them off. So <laughs> it's always a risk. You also oh have you're, you're cocktailing yeah. tonight here in London, aren't you, Brian? Speaking of physical events returning, yeah, it's the opening of the IDRC's new building um, in right by St Paul's Cathedral um, in London. It's the St Paul's Churchyard, I believe it's called. Um, they have an amazing new, and we all know IDRC's venue was something to be desired here in London. Uh, but they have moved. It's a gorgeous building. Um, they've even like reconstructed this new entrance with a art sculpture in front, and it's it's very very nice. It's open plan. They have hearing rooms. It's teched out to the to the hilt. Wait, so you've seen it? Already? Yeah, I had a tour. Um, I joined an organization which I'll talk about oh. later on uh, called Arbitra, and oh, they're okay. actually housed in the same okay. building. So I got a tour. It's still very oh, much under God. construction, but they're having an opening cocktail reception tonight. And they have um, color-coded stickers, depending on whether you feel comfortable shaking hands or whether you don't feel comfortable shaking mm. hands, which I think is oh. fair and, yeah. and quite a nice gesture. Wish I had that. Yeah. What about kisses? They don't have <laughs> that. That'll be a, a different sticker kissing. in France. <laughs> That's not even on the table. <laughs> yeah. Comfortable, not so comfortable, uncomfortable, French. Or hugging or, or open you to know? kissing. <laughs> Yeah, or the Americans, they hug. You know, that's even more intimate. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Um, Yeah, so that is, yeah, our new normal um, that we're embarking into. It's it's quite exciting. Um, But we have a new sponsor for this season. Um, We'd like to thank the Eye Reporter for all their love and support and uh, blind faith in this project. Um, uh, we th- thank you so thank much, you. Luke. And also, I, this is yeah. my favorite part of the arbitration station. I have to correct you, Brian. It's not the arbi- investment arbitration reporter. It is just investment arbitration reporter. It's yes. like, uh, you know, Foo Fighters. It's not the Foo Fighters. It's just Foo Fighters. <laughs> just IA reporter. <laughs> okay. The, the, it's the only one I know. <laughs> In any yeah. event, thank you so thank you so much. Luke, thank you very much, Luke, for your for your support. <laughs> we know that you are still supporting us, and that uh, IO Reporter will be with us, uh, but not in an official capacity because we have, I was going to say, downgraded or upgraded? Question mark remains to be seen with our new sponsor. Sidestepped. <laughs> <laughs> our new sponsor. It's actually something we've been trying to do for a while, just to link it to one of us, and it will now be. My new firm, MB Kemp LLP. Um, it'll be our office here in London will be the main sponsor, but it's our firm worldwide um, in Hong Kong, Milan, Dubai, and Abu Dhabi that will be behind us. Um, it will be support in name only. Uh, this is not representative of our firm when we don't take anything uh, <laughs> to be um, the opinions or legal advice of our firm, but it will just be. Um, arbitration, the arbitration station uh, brought to you by um, MB Camp LLP. So I will, we'll have a little blurb in every episode to thank them for their support. Thank you so Great. much. Thank you. And while we're on this topic, should, should you, I can just do the blanket disclosure yes. thing that we, that we should do more often than we do, just to, to make it clear to everyone as we start a new season and we embark on a new episode today before we talk about what's on this episode. This is a podcast 
We speak off the cuff. We generally don't really know what we're talking about. Please do not attribute anything we say to our <laughs> employers or really to us as individuals either, for that matter. Uh, it's not legal advice. It's, it's basically intended to be, and as you will know, it actually tends to be three people just talking spontaneously with the only difference being there's a microphone recording what we say. So don't, you know, it's, it's entertainment and, and a friendly conversation typically. Yeah, I think we've written, exactly. Joel and I have written on this, but just before you joined us, Sadia, um, on, in the Stockholm Arbitration Yearbook about how the purpose and the um, genesis of the podcast was about speaking freely without the fear of consequence or repercussion for being wrong. Um, this is really just to be slightly provocative as far as we can to engage discussion and to allow people of all different seniority to speak on topics freely um, for the purposes of just gaining more insight into interesting points of issue in the arbitration world. And so to, to, to yank each other's chains as well. Like most people in the legal profession, <laughs> we just like, we just enjoy exactly. the devil's advocate side of conversations. <laughs> yeah, that's our job. Yeah, exactly. And if there were too many caveats and if, you know, and if we were thinking too much about what we were saying and this would be yeah just another corporate podcast <laughs> exactly so you're welcome we are welcome everyone yes inclusivity <laughs> what will we be arguing over today we have as is customary three segments no yes we have three segments so we're getting a bit away from uh, europe for the first one uh although are we uh, that's going to be the question. <laughs> so, when I talk about DIFC, DIFC, LCIA, if these acronyms mean anything to you, I'm going to leave it to that. We'll see what's mm. going to happen on that front. Yes. Um, yeah. Then we will be launching into an interview that actually was recorded a while ago, but um, we saved it for this season. Um, an interview with someone named Keith Harper, who's a partner at Jenner and Block, but um, was a dip or is a diplomat who was the first Native American to ever receive the rank of U.S. ambassador. Um, he's a member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma um, and has been working on behalf of the Native Americans for years. Um, and from the 2014 to 2017, he was the U.S. representative to the U.N. Human Rights Council in Geneva. And I interviewed him um, with the aim of getting more, quote, outsiders of arbitration into our podcast to discuss indigenous rights and the intersection between indigenous rights and investment treaty arbitration. And he caveats in the beginning and in our email exchange before the interview that he doesn't claim to be an expert on indigenous rights and investment treaty arbitration, but just where what the right forum could be for ex or vindicating the their rights um, before either domestic courts, domestic tribunals or international tribunals and what the success in either of those forums could be. Um, which I think is a great topic. Yes, we're generalist disputes lawyers on this podcast, at least from time to time. <laughs> Trying. Uh, and, and then for happy fun time. Yes, it's acron oh. acronymization station. Again, it's AML, <laughs> which is either a law firm or a Korean boy band, or, or, or what is it? Korean BT boy band? BTS. Oh, you're mixing what is, up everything yeah, up. What is, what is um, AML? Ryan? Yeah. It's anti-money laundering. Um, 
and mm. you need to check that before you start any case specifically here in the UK um but it's i mean it's done across the board and we are in a highly vulnerable industry and profession to be susceptible to these types of red flags so to make it on a lighter note we'll discuss kind of what firms should be looking for and what policies are in place and also some interesting ways that this can materialize before your very eyes that means we're good to go good to go let's go to dubai Okay, I'm going to start with some trivia questions. You ready? <sighs> My favorite. How many legal systems are there in the UAE? Legal systems? Yeah, like um mhm. Mm yeah, legal systems. What like how many jurisdictions are there or how many <laughs> Oh my God, laws. am I not using the right terms? <laughs> there is Dubai and the DIFC. We can make that differentiation. Yeah, so there are actually three in the oh, UAE. Oh, there's more. There's the domestic UAE legal system or jurisdiction. Would you call it jurisdiction? Would you be full, feel more comfortable if I would say jurisdiction, Joe? Yeah, it, dep it, it, depends, it depends on what the answer is. And I, I don't have any idea. I'm just trying to stall. <laughs> the second one is the DIFC. So what is DIFC? The Dubai International Financial Center legal system, which is a free zone in the Emirate of Dubai, which was created in 2003. And that has its own civil and commercial laws and its own courts. So it's modeled on international best practice and largely follows the English common law approach. Its purpose, obviously, as you can imagine, was to appeal to the international business community and to attract further foreign investment. Um, it also has its own arbitration law, which is modeled on the fill in the blanks. Uncentral model law. That's correct. Yes. And so arbitration seated in the DIFC is subject to the procedural framework set out in the DIFC arbitration law. Okay. The third one is the Abu Dhabi Global Market Legal System. And so ADGM, because I know Joel loves acronyms, is also a free zone in the Emirate of Abu Dhabi. Okay, so it's still in the UAE. It was established in 2013, and that also has its own civil and commercial laws, and it's all English law, common law courts. And it has its own arbitration law, which is based on ancestral model law. Now, second trivia question. How many arbitration centers are there now in Dubai? Not uh, saying UAE. Uh, as Dubai. of now or? <laughs> Good question. Yes. Stalling. As of He's now. stalling. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is either three or one, depending on your outlook. On well, your outlook. <laughs> <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. Um, so, There are three arbitration centers um, until I would say a couple of months now. <laughs> And I'm going to talk about this a little bit more. So the Dubai International Arbitration Center is the first one, DIAC, which was established in 2004. And uh, for a while, um, it was a key player in international arbitration in Dubai Um, and it has attracted mostly the UAE parties, um, and particularly parties from Dubai. Uh, the cases are overseen by the Dubai courts, 
which operate in Arabic, and they apply UAE law. Um, interestingly, in 2017, the DIAC opened an office in the DIFC. <laughs> Still following? <laughs> which enables parties to resort to the DIFC courts to enforce their awards. Now, the second International Arbitration Center is the DIFC-LCIA Arbitration Center, which was established in 2008. Um, and it's basically a joint venture between the DIFC and LCIA. It's located in the Emirate of Dubai, but it is situated within the DIFC. Um, so its purpose was to attract international users um, and that, you know, the main ob objective was to attract the DIFC status as a common law jurisdiction, uh, meaning that the cases would be overseen by English-speaking common law courts. Um, and its arbitration law, which we just saw, is modeled on the ancestral model law. In early 2021... Uh, the DIFC-LCIA adopted new arbitration rules modeling the LCIA 2020 rules. And the caseload approximately is administrating around 140, 180 cases, which sees, apparently it says that it's been growing um, a lot. The third international arbitration center in Dubai is, anybody knows? It's something, something maritime arbitration center. Yes. Jill and his love for maritime things. <laughs> Emirates Maritime Arbitration Center, EMAC, I guess, E-M-A-C, EMAC, uh, was established in 2016 to provide the maritime industry with alternative specialized dispute resolution services in the Middle East. Um, although it is reported that um, even though it was marketing itself as active, it had not yet succeeded in winning cases uh, from other centers. Now, why are we talking about this today? And um, we were talking about three or one. What was that all about? Well, I'm sure you all must have heard uh, that on the 14th of September of this year, which means just a couple of days ago from this recording, uh, a couple of weeks ago from when this will be online, the ruler of Dubai, a vice president and prime minister of the UAE, his Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum issued Dubai Decree Number 34 of 2021, which took effect on 20 September 2021. And what does it say? Article 4 has abolished the DIFC-LCI Arbitration Center and the EMAC, which is the Emirates Maritime Arbitration Center, with immediate effect and established a single unified arbitration center for Dubai on the basis of D-I-A-C. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Article 5 of the decree states that from the date of effect, the properties, movable assets, devices, equipments, funds belonging to the DIFC, LCIA, and EMAC will be transferred to DIAC, uh, as will their financial allocation from the government of Dubai, their employees, their list of arbitrators, conciliators, members... Um, and DIC will also take over all their rights and obligation. It's a pretty big deal. That's massive. <laughs> <laughs> pretty big deal. Um, what's going to happen? Existing arbitration agreements and pending disputes. What What is going to happen? So Article Abolished. 6A of the, yeah. Abolished? <laughs> so Article Oops. 6A, it wasn't that 
it's not that that crazy. It, Article okay. 6A of the decree provides that all agreements which have been concluded by 20 September 2021, providing for arbitration under the rules of one of the abolished centers, shall be considered as valid and effective. But And it proposes that the new DIAC shall substitute the abolished centers in the administration of disputes under such agreements, unless the parties agree otherwise. Hint, hint, lawyers, please renegotiate mm-hmm. your contracts. Uh, with regard to ongoing cases, Article 6B of the decree provides that arbitral tribunals constituted by 20 September 2021 shall continue to hear and determine all arbitration cases before them without interruption and under applicable rules and procedures. And 6B also suggests that DIAC supervises the cases. Um Article 7 provides that each of the Dubai courts and the DIFC courts shall continue to hear cases concerning arbitration awards and other measures relating to arbitrations under the rules of one of the abolished centers. Now, there's a grace period. So Article 9 provides that the new DIAC um, uh, with six months from 20 September, so March 2022, uh, to give effect to the transition prescribed by the decree. Can I ask... Something you just jump in, uh, reacting to something you said, so they are reading from the decree. So the pending cases under the, the, the rules of the two centers that have now been abolished, they will be heard under those old rules, but under the one center that now exists in Dubai. That, I don't know what the legal status is, but if you like legally absolve the two institutions, don't you also sort of nullify the rules connected to those institutions? Like, what is the legal status of the arbitration rules? Assume for the sake of argument that the UK government would just absolve mm-hmm. the, the LCAA or the Swedish government would absolve the SEC, assuming they could do so. What happens to the SEC rules or the LCAA rules? Isn't that sort of the intellectual property of an institution that no longer exists? Or mm-hmm. is are, are the arbitration rules just... I don't know. There has to be some sort of intellectual property value to the rules and not anyone can just do whatever they want with them. Or is it, I don't know. I don't know where I'm getting at. I'm just interested in what happened. No, that's a really good, no, no, that's a really good question. Actually, I think there was a comment in a global arbitration review that also raised that question of it's not going to be possible because of IP law issues to use the rules of another institution um, in a separate institution. But then there has been commentary from practitioners um, saying that there's existing court practice that supports the validity of hybrid clause like these. That's true. That's, um, that's happened I, in Sweden several times. I think we, we probably talked about this on some earlier segment. I, I just think it's a little bit in bad taste as well, disregarding IP law for, for a while to say your institution no longer exists and all your cases will still be heard under your old rules. But, but yeah, under a new that's the difference, right? With those, right? Because that's the difference with the, these other cases, which are applying the rules in a different institution. Exactly. Um, this, this, you would be applying the rules of an institution that no longer exists, right? So that's the question. Question mark. I do not have an answer to that. Let's see what happens. But that's a real question for sure. Um, also, what? is interesting is article four of the statute that says that if the arbitration agreement provides for arbitration in dubai then the applicable law is the uae arbitration law which is uh, federal decree 6 of 2018 
And the Dubai courts, uh, so onshore, that's how we make the difference, onshore or offshore, have jurisdictions for disputes relating to the arbitration. If the arbitration agreement provides for arbitration in the DIFC, then the DIFC arbitration law of 2008 applies. And the DIFC courts offshore have jurisdiction over the arbitration. If the parties fail to specify a seat, then by default is the DIFC, is the default seat. So it's not like the default seat is DIAC, you know, it's, there still is DIFC as the default seat. Um, now, there's also going to be a new mm-hmm. DIAC statute. It's not like it's they, they refer to DIAC, but really, um, we don't really know what it's going to look like. Um, because in addition to the board of directors and administrative body, DIAC will now have a court of arbitration a la ICC. Um, so the court will be composed of 13 members um, and they will convene at least once every 60 days. Um, also, a point that at least caught my attention, DIAC arbitrators and court members will not face liability for the awards of tribunals and decisions of the court. Uh, if you remember, there was a whole discussion about this um, just you know recently, so which is really reassuring. Um, there's been a mixed reaction, mixed bag of reaction between practitioners about this development. Some see, saw that long time coming. Um, some see this as a justification, to, you know, to consolidate our, the arbitration centers, bearing in mind that Dubai is one of the top 10 seats, according to the Queen Mary survey of arbitral institutions. So query as to whether this will change or not. When I say top 10 seats, I think I should say it's the 10th seat. Okay. <laughs> it still <laughs> qualifies it. as a top 10 seat. Good clarification. <laughs> just, just made it. Just made it. And then others uh, really see it as aggressive move. Uh, some question whether or not the LCIA knew about it even. So imagine if that is true, then it's pretty aggressive. Um, do we know, on, then, on, on, like just because I'm an idiot with this, do we know exactly what sort of the relationship is between the LCIA and the DIFC, like because or the former DIFC LCIA. What, so there what is was the, you mean the nature of the agreement? Yeah, I, I know that the, the the rules are very similar, and and they do a lot of things together. And the LCIA has an interest in, but I don't even know exactly, you know, what the scope is. I understand it was a joint venture agreement between both, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, yeah. So it's they. I haven't seen you know, the, the agreement per se, but um, for sure there was a link between the IFC and LCIA. Um, now we have previous examples of India and Mauritius where, you know, the LCIA had uh, offices there and they closed them, but this is a bit different, I would say. So yeah, I, I, I've been curious to see some of the reactions that you mentioned, Sadia, as well, and and some people putting the it's it's helpful to look at it through uh, my pet peeve of pro arbitration as as a lens, because I think many people would agree that this is maybe pro arbitration in terms of outcome, but not so much pro arbitration in terms of process. Like how did we get there? Because now there's one consolidated center and they've updated it, and the rules are a bit more in line with modern practice, and it's more predictable. Yeah. And- and whatnot, yeah. but it kind of happened, you know, over the course of a week by way of almost an expropriation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so that's a that's a good point that you're making. I mean, the question is, is is it 
that's that's the impression we get at least when we read the press and not being in the region that's the impression we're getting um now you know some practitioners from dubai are saying that this was you know long time coming um normal expected so on and so forth and progressive so I wonder, even i re- i saw a quote it was probably in the same gar article that you quoted yeah. so that someone from yeah. a practitioner from the region said this was a progressive move which which is an interesting choice of words well because they're modernizing the rules and so on and so forth so it would fall under the same um the the same logic um in i don't know if you guys have seen the statement from the LCIA website officially i mean they haven't um unless i missed it i haven't heard any official commentary from um the LCIA but they have said we are aware of the issuance and gazetting of decree concerning Dubai International Arbitration Center by the ruler of Dubai consultation is taking place <laughs> between <laughs> the LCIA and the government of Dubai <laughs> to speak to ensure the good management of existing and future cases where parties have agreed to arbitration mediation under the DIFC LCIA rules the casework team continues to try to deal with the day-to-day management of cases under the DIFC LCIA rules look like uh this was planned but maybe i'm wrong honestly i'm just speculating uh i don't want to get in trouble by saying that um expropriation point that you mentioned are you uh insinuating there might be an investment treaty claim is that what's coming to your mind uh, not not really I but i think i mean we <laughs> I, i was yeah let's if you thought about this let's let's pursue this because i think it's it's an interesting point and obviously this has been sold as not a an expropriation but sort of a consolidation on behalf of of the public powers of dubai they're consolidating the arbitration market essentially but as a barrister friend of ours put it it's like saying i'm not robbing you i'm consolidating our wallets <laughs> <laughs> well when you nationalize um you know um energy it's different of course but you know national resources you could also say i'm consolidating my resources yeah but uh, you can merge companies but when you say i'm going to take your assets your rights and your <laughs> obligations and everything yeah. they're under etc cetera, etc cetera, into perpetuity then i think you're entering a different realm of of no. action <laughs> but who would I mean, be what the is expropriation right so who, who would be the claimant the definition though? of sorry so that's that's no 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 but that's a really good question i mean um i think let's take take things step by step what is an investment treaty arbitration you would need to have a treaty claim so you need a treaty first of all um depends on who are the parties absolutely dual um would it be the lcia as mm-hmm. a english investor in the uae question mark if it is then there would be there is a uae and uk bilateral investment treaty in force which provides for exit jurisdiction but does the lcia's invest involvement in the difc lcia and that goes back to your question Jules, as to the nature of the relationship uh would that qualify as an investment under the treaty mm, this is a familiar is there any risk for example if they're entering into a joint exactly. venture that they can just walk away from is that a risk do you need risk for an investment salini right. blah 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 we're back to exactly. familiar contribution what was their contribution what was the risk query as to whether or not you know contribution to the economic development of the state is a criteria or not but is was there here 
Was there not? Um, you know, there's been a bunch of cases on these elements. Um, there's been an interesting case that was highlighted um, by uh, our dear researcher, Dimitri. Thank you so much for doing this research. Uh, Patrick Mitchell versus Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, which concerned uh, whether or not a law firm's provision of legal services to a private client could constitute investment. Um, and the annulment committee did not deny that a firm's provision of legal services to a private client could in principle constitute investment, but it drew a line between the economic, economic, that's one of the words I can't say, economic, <laughs> economic, how do you say depends it? Where, it depends economic? where you're from. Both, oh, are, both okay. work. Both work? Okay. So. Economic. Operation economic or service, in this case, providing services by the law firm on the one hand and the assets and rights that are part of the operation on the other. So according to the annulment committee, the form, only the former category constitutes an investment for the purpose of the exit convention. Um, but there, there are also an interesting paragraph 39, which is uh, highlighted because they say as a legal consulting firm, is a somewhat uncommon operation from the standpoint of the concept of investment. In the opinion of the ad hoc committee, it is necessary for the contribution to the economic development or at least the interest of the states, in this case, the DRC, to be somehow present in the operation. So that's an example of a case that gave a lot of, you know, um, weight to the economic development. Of yeah, the I don't want to... like shoot this down because this is what we do to to a man with a hammer everything looks like a nail you know of course of course we would try to speculate how to, how to bring like a 3d that. claim over this but doesn't this also assume you know in real life that the lcia would have any kind of interest in launching a 3d case of course and that's always the first question that we have when we start you know with with thinking about this now we're just you know kind of playing around with the yeah, and I think that the statement that you read from the hinted at, like the LCIA is now just uh, silently and slowly backing out of the room while trying to minimize whatever damage this may have on pending cases. It doesn't read to me like they are up in arms trying to fight back or oppose this because it's already sort of game over and now it's damage control and, and trying to make sure that pending arbitrations are not damaged and that future arbitrations will will go on as, as envisioned That's by the people behind this. Yeah. That's the thing I was thinking is in terms of financial damage to the LCIA, how much is, you know, how much does that represent a financial damage to the LCIA? I was just thinking about that. It's, it's well, it, that goes to your joint venture discussion on whether those assets were put there by the LCIA, whether they purchased mm -hmm. the building and then the DIFC LCIA operated it. Um, mm -hmm. But then you could include lost profit if are they sharing profits from from this um you know they could say lost profits for cases that would have come to the dfc lcia mm -hmm. um, a lot of maybe, unknowns i think but maybe mm. you could also argue that as a result of this now people are going to move away from dubai and uh, i mean either um some practitioners are calling for remember how i mentioned abu dhabi as mm -hmm. an alternative center or that would be interesting or, um, but I wonder if that's really an alternative going back to London. And to make it analogous to Patrick Mitchell, or, or, do we have to then take it the analysis even further and say that the because it's not the provision of legal services per se, it's the administrative support to arbitrations. Mm -hmm. Is does that equate to the contribution to the economic development of the DIFC? Because 
arbitration as a concept is supposed to promote investment? Is this like where we're yeah, having to that's take really the interesting. <laughs> wow, we're going to open a Pandora's box here. Does I know. <laughs> really contribute to host development. And, well, that's because they're not, you know, they're not providing legal services per se. It's, you know, it's basically facilitating the use of arbitration. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is ongoing. Um, pretty a big earthquake, uh, at least seen from here. From the UK, it seems. Maybe the people in Dubai are like, eh, no problem. Happens every day. (laughs) (laughs) So send us your comments. Send us your comments. Thank you, Sadia. This was great. Good start to season six. We have a special episode today, a um, special segment that we have on the arbitration station, and we have Ambassador Keith Harper with us today. He is a currently a partner at Jenner and Block in the U.S., but um, we're going to kind of pick his brain on something that he um, may be claimed to be an expert in, which is um, Indigenous rights and how those affect not only in arbitration, but litigation, investigation. And you joined Jenner actually after a Supreme Court case. Is that right? Yeah. So um, not because of the Supreme Court case, but uh, the certainly um, the Supreme Court and appellate advocacy group of, of Jenner is really extraordinary and it's and of course they did have the McGurk case which is right uh groundbreaking um perhaps the most important case in the last three decades on Indian law so uh it was certainly an attractive element um to marry our our Native American practice team with uh with the with the exceptional uh lawyers at Jenner absolutely can you give a just a brief introduction to your background um I sure. you are a member of a of a tribe in I'm, I'm a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Um, it's the largest tribe in the United States, uh, about 380,000 members, I think, uh, citizens. Um, and I've been practicing Indian law uh, almost all my career, um, more than two decades, uh, with, um, with one departure as I joined the State Department for a few years to do some human rights issues. Right. And you actually were also a, or were an ambassador and permanent member of the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission, Rights Council. Yeah, I was the United States ambassador uh, under President Obama to the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, I spent about three years in Geneva, Switzerland, um, representing the United States, uh, advocating uh, for human rights around the world, on um, a whole variety of issues. And it's really the uh, uh, put a spotlight on those places where uh, they're having grievous uh, human rights violations. Right. So to kind of hone in on the indigenous, the protection of indigenous rights, I personally have only seen this come up. Um, I had a mining case in Panama and it had to deal with um, the displacement of a lot of indigenous communities in that area. And um, so I did kind of meet and become familiar with some of these like consultation provisions and the national laws that require you to consult with the indigenous population before you receive a permit or license to, you know, explore or exploit these uh, minerals. But I would have to say that that topic was brought up in a factual part of the factual matrix, but I don't think it was necessarily delved into too much by the tribunal. And I wonder if in your practice or, you know, in your background, you would maybe note the same things that although it's raised in the investment arbitration context, it's not necessarily vetted perhaps as much as it, as it should be. 
Yeah, look, I, I'm um, I, I'm a litigator uh, in the United States, and uh, um, I represent uh, a lot of Indian tribes in, in lawsuits, mostly in federal court. Um, sometimes in domestic arbitrations as well. Um, and, uh, but certainly I'm familiar with the impact of uh, international businesses on uh, indigenous communities around the world, um, mm-hmm. whether mining or uh, oil and gas exploration. There's a, you know, uh, um, there's a whole variety of natural resources, uh, uh, types of cases that arise and impact indigenous communities. And, and, and the modern trend as um, articulated well in the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is that groups should have what is called free, prior and informed consent um, right. on development regarding their lands or lands that impact them or their natural resources, whether those be waters or, or what have you. Um, and, uh, and so, the, the question arises quite often as to where do they seek relief um, if there is something that goes awry mm-hmm. uh, or if consent or in, in, in the area that you're talking about where there hasn't been not even not, not there hasn't been consent, but there and oftentimes there haven't even been consultation, which is sort of before consent. Right. Right. Um, and they haven't even had discussions prior to the development. And so, when either these procedural or substantive rights uh, of these communities are breached, the question arises: How do they? How do they get enforced? And um, and it, it, it's a, it's a, it's 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 usually it doesn't get enforced. Um, mm-hmm. That's been the, typically the history in this area, um, depending on the domestic laws. And you know, in the United States over the last seven, you know, four or five decades, we've done better uh, than decades prior to that in ensuring the protection of certain rights. Um, those have been hard, hard fought, uh, um, but I think we're doing better now than we were before. And I think that that's true in a lot of places, you know, they're starting to develop and build institutions, but oftentimes it is dependent on rule of law. It is dependent on whether or not they have strong uh, judicial tribunals um, and uh, fair judges and that kind of thing. So. Um, it's certainly hit or hit or miss. So, so, so it also gives a rise to this question of, is there something within the international sphere right. that could maybe be a better forum? And that's where I think these discussions of arbitration or UN mechanisms or regional organizational me- mechanisms come into play. Absolutely. And I think, I think the inherent issue is that in investment arbitration, it's the state um, that is the respondent state, and even and they're the ones granting the license or the permit to to allow access to these resources. Um, and although they may approve the consultation or consent, um, there's no kind of there's no access to this system from the di- indigenous communities to kind of give whether this was informed consent. So my first question to you is. Where, where, and maybe this, uh, of course, this is dependent on national law, but so you can speak from the U.S. perspective, what, who has the burden to ensure that this consultation and this consent is adequately obtained? Is it on the corporations seeking the permit, or do you think it would be the government to kind of have that general oversight? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, the, go- the government is the one that has leverage, you know, in the discussions, right? Right. Because, and, and, 
And the challenge, it seems to me, in, in my sort of limited understanding of, of the extant record on, on these kinds of cases, is that, you know, the governments have a panoply of interests. Um, uh, and uh, indigenous people's um, claims and concerns do not necessarily rise to the top of the equities list right. <laughs> for, for, for the government. <laughs> you know, they care more about what's going to you know, impact their bottom line often or they're going to impact their you know what uh, uh, their their resources and, and and so forth, or or you know sometimes it's uh, labor laws that they care about. There's a variety of things that they care about, right? And depending on the country, they they may play lip service to you know requirements regarding indigenous peoples and say that they're going to make sure that that happens. But when push comes to shove in these in in proceedings, mm-hmm. then I think too often those fall to the bottom of the objectives list um, and. Uh, I, th- I think that's a fairly consistent theme from my understanding. And what, what's the scope of these consultations? Like what, what do they actually, what do they consult them on? And, and are there any strings attached for granting the permit that the, that the indigenous people are looking for um, in, in giving their consent? Yeah. So I think that, you know, again, it's, 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 it's always, it, it, it's hit or miss. And, mm-hmm. um, and too often the, uh, the provisions are nothing more than in operation as sort of box checking exercises, right? Oh, right. we talked to them and we consulted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's why the modern trend and the modern push from in, the indigenous side is not merely consultation, but is consent because consent and free prior and informed consent mm-hmm. requires knowledge of the precise nature and scope of the uh, development, um, how that development will impact the lands, resources, and communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they can make a decision as to whether or not to say yay or nay. Um, but even governments are, are, are resistant to going that far. Even they may talk about it as consent, but to actually give consent right. to, to, to these communities, governments are concerned that it would um, undermine their, their goals to have greater development. So, um, so there's just a tension there. Um, and right. at the end of the day, the indigenous communities, their rights tend to be too often paper rights and not sort of enforceable rights. Mm-hmm. Who gives the consent for, if, you know, in a Native American tribe, who would be the person or the, the council that would, that would give that consent? It's a great question, and it varies. Um, you know, you take my tribe, Cherokee Nation. Depending on the issue, we have an executive that's the chief, um, okay. and then and then the deputy chief, um, and they handle a lot of the economic development. Sometimes that's handled by a a business council or or a tribal tribal council. Um, so it's a variety. And sometimes, um, depending on the nature and scope of the project, it could be all what they call the general council, which is all voting members of the tribe. Um, a number of tribes do that as well. So uh, even in the United States, uh, there's just a great variety. Um, but if I had to say the most common, I would say it, it's usually a, a, a tribal council of some nature, some, some five, seven, nine, up to 15 people I've seen. Um, and they will consider and then vote on whether or not they accept a project or, or, or not. And of course, in, in today's world, they, they rely heavily on uh, folks uh, that can provide them business advice and, and lawyers, et cetera. Right. Uh, you know, when you're looking at other places, they may not have those same kind of developed uh, structures. And so 
you raise a very important question because uh, there is there is often um, uh, a uh, not a great understanding of who represents the community. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it may not be somebody that actually enjoys support from their constituents, but somebody selected by the government. And so, you know, you have situations that these individuals are not really speaking for the people. Um, so th- there are those tensions um, that you can see, and uh, particularly with um, exploitative resource uh, development in Latin America, I've seen it quite a bit. <clears throat> yeah, and that's where my case was that I had, because there was an issue in that case, depending on um, who was the recognized leader of this specific indigenous tribe. And it was contended within the community, whether that person had the capability to give the consent. Um, and, that, exactly. and then that goes to the Supreme Court, which is hosts an, an, a number of issues. Yeah, and, 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 and that's exactly right. And, and that's not an uncommon thing in which these, you know, um, and, 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 and to be fair to the companies, um, even if you're a well-meaning company, right. you might get consent from somebody who's purporting to be the person that can give you consent. Um, but if they don't actually have that authority, then you're still going to, you know, um, uh, end up in a, some kind of a dispute. Um, so, and then that dispute goes to the government because the courts will be the ones determining that, and that kind of deprives them of their own sovereignty. Precisely, precisely. Okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, um, and so it's, um, and, you know, in the United States, we generally have um, not only tribes that are rep- that are recognized by the federal government, but then leadership of those tribes that is selected within the tribe that is then represented is then recognized um, as the as the speakers. Now there could be disputes uh, still, but oftentimes those are easy easier to resolve. Uh, so too for say the Maoris in New Zealand or right. you know Australian uh, indigenous communities or uh, Canadian natives, um, uh, first First Nations there. So, but you get to I think especially in the global South and the more of the developing world mm-hmm. where they don't necessarily have those same kind of uh, infrastructure, that same kind of uh, institutional capacity building, both right. on the tribal side, but also on the government side. So, Right. So how does within, let's take the investment arbitration and the international community out of it. Where do local disputes, be it about, you know, the, the own tribe sovereignty, but also, you know, with intertribal disputes, how are those typically resolved? Well, I mean, it, it, again, here, I think you have a divide between, you know, some countries and other countries, and okay. it really, they're on a continuum depending on their, um, uh, the institutional development um, uh, of that particular country. Um, but, you know, for example, in the United States, you can, there's federal court litigation that's not uncommon that deals with precisely these kinds of, of questions. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you may have heard there was a big protest in North Dakota um, regarding a pipeline. A pipeline, uh, right. Yeah, a Dakota Access Pipeline. And, um, you know, that's, that's held up in the courts till, till today. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's gone back and forth in federal district court up to the Court of Appeals. Um, and the question there really is exactly what this, this, this issue that we're getting at, which is, was there sufficient communication and there clearly was not consent by the, by the tribe, but was there, was there communication, even sort of lower level communication consultation with right. them? And, uh, you know, I think, I think 
companies are understanding more and more that if they have that kind of engagement, if they rely on those who are familiar with these communities and can really kind of build a partnership, they, they, they are much more likely to first not have disputes, which is good for everybody. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and, and if disputes were to arise, be able to resolve them in a way that um, can be fair um, to everybody. And, you know, it, it's, it, it, for a company, my sort of um, experience with companies is that, you know, there's a lot that don't want to be exploited. I'm not saying everyone, there are ones out there yes. that are problematic, clearly, but they do want settled expectations and they want to understand clear rules and that they have clear rules and clear practices and clear um, metrics as to what the expectations are then I think it's easier for them to do their work and their job as well. Um, and uh, they recognize that there's reputational costs and there's bottom line costs mm-hmm. uh, associated when you have uh, this kind of uh, dispute that arises that's especially, you know, impacting people that have been exploited over generations. <clears throat> Absolutely. And I, I know there is, you know, domestic protection from the national laws and there's not a whole lot in the international plane that gives that same protection. You mentioned the the UN declaration on the what the rights of indigenous peoples. Um, is what is I mean in your I'm not asking you to be the mouthpiece for the indigenous communities all over the world, but do you think that there's enough teeth in this in these declarations and the and the existing international law to protect the indigenous people's rights in these international investment tribunals and, and the like? In and of themselves, I think the answer is clearly no, right? Okay. I mean, even under international law, declarations are not hard law, right? They're not like treaties. Um, but, but I also urge people not to make too fine a point between hard law treaties and, 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 and things like declarations. Mm-hmm. Uh, after all, you know, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is a declaration, uh, uh, but everybody basically considers it uh, international law at this point, uh, as right. sort of defining what r- rights of individuals are. Um, I think the more important thing is how do you enforce, and this is, this is, this is my general skepticism with international forums, is that too often um, you do not have the capability to enforce, even when it's hard law. You know, yes. famously, of course, the dispute regarding the South China Sea, um, the, the arbitration tribunal held in favor of the Philippines virtually on every issue. Mm-hmm. China just said, sorry, we're not going to follow the law. So <laughs> that's supposed to be hard law. That's supposed to be enforceable. Um, right now, today, China is still building islands, um, uh, man-made islands in the South China Sea. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm skeptical of international because, I find enforceability um, can be very difficult in, in any case. Um, arbitrations, certain kinds of arbitrations, I think, are with businesses are a little bit different, are a little bit different. But we're talking about nations and whether or not they have to follow um, uh, an order of an arbitration panel. We, it's, a, it's certainly a mixed record. Um, and so what I've urged indigenous communities to do with things like the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People is domesticate those and make them enforceable in domestic law. Um, so take those same provisions and uh, put them in, and, and try to seek them to be codified 
in your domestic law and enforceable in your courts. Um, right. And, and then, and, 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 you know, when that works, then you can have an order that can, compels compliance with whatever the order provides. Because it is, and as you say, in going back to my original point about the inherent issue of it being the state representing these indigenous communities in the investment arbitration, you get an award and and, and how how does it eventually be, become protected? Let's say the state is liable or and therefore has to allow an exploitation permit to be granted, um, even though that's not something that would be in the award, but the damages arising therefrom means the state needs to change its actions. But that still would infringe on the indigenous communities themselves. So the state has been held responsible and now the indigenous communities have to suffer as a result of, of them finding yeah. responsibility. Yeah. And, and, and plus they, you know, they, they, they don't necessarily have standing and also the state can, as a political matter, say, Hey, I'm being forced to do this. I have this award that, you know, and so I have to do this. And so it sort of gives them the political basis to do certain things that might be otherwise unappealing. Right. Uh, so, you know, it can, it can definitely be used as a sword uh, as well as a shield, um, depending on the circumstance. And, you know, look, again, with states, you know, I imagine some are trying to do the right thing. Um, but, you know, most, most states, most, most countries at any given time have a hundred things they're trying to get done. Mm-hmm. One of those may be stick up for their indigenous communities. Um, but rarely is that one of the top five um, things that they want to get done. Um, right. So it's just a kind of realpolitik of it all. So you, you said that, you know, the, the quest would be towards finding a resolution that's fair. And do you think that a, not only is it the enforceability in the domestic jurisdictions, but do you think that there is the actual dispute resolution mechanism needs to be, for lack of a better word, domesticated uh, so that you don't have, because right now you would have international yeah. law being analyzed by an arbitral tribunal in an investment treaty context, and they're applying international law as a way to assess the state's obligation. But do you think there is a domestic mechanism that would be better equipped to address these consultation and consent uh, issues? Yeah, and you know, um, it, I think again, it depends on the state. But I, 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 I will say, I am very much, I am very intrigued about this idea of these investment treaties. Um, as a potential mechanism. And, and, and the way I would look at it is if you're going to make them uh, have teeth to support mm-hmm. indigenous communities, then I think states should insist that the indigenous communities themselves will have standing to bring the arbitration. Because then if they had standing to bring their arbitration, then they could hire their own lawyers and then they can pursue their own, their own rights. Now, I haven't seen a lot of states sort of making that a point. Um, but it seems to me that if you really want to get serious about it, that's the way you do it. So that uh, to the extent that there is a dispute that arises, um, you know, I don't think indigenous communities necessarily are concerned about it being binding on them um, if they have a say in the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the say in the dispute. So maybe that's a way forward to utilize this mechanism that I think is intriguing and, and, and could be useful. Uh, but is currently implemented because the indigenous communities are generally not provided um, access to the arbitration, mm-hmm. uh, then it, it, it's hard to see how in the global calculus between states and companies that they're going to actually have their equities protected. Are there, do, do they usually 
um, kind of, I mean, I, I bet they could submit like amicus curiae and these types of decisions, but are they, are these tribes typically unrepresented? Do they typically not have counsel um, and want to represent themselves? No, I think increasingly um, indigenous communities have lawyers, um, you know, that uh, 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 certainly in the United States, um, most have lawyers of one type or another. Okay. Um, and you really, it's really an essential thing in the modern day in countries like the United States or Canada um, or New Zealand that they come to mind. Um, I think that, you know, when you're talking about, again, the global South, um, then it just becomes more challenging. Uh, there are some countries that ha- I think have done very well. Um, uh, you know, certainly um, during uh, Lula da Silva's time um, as president of Brazil, I think they, they, there was an enhancement of uh, opportunities for representation of, of tribal indigenous communities. Um, not so much now with uh, the present, uh, present leadership there. Right. Do you see, how do you see the landscape now? Do you see developments going towards either less transactions or transactions being kind of um, hindered because of the emergence of the strength of the indigenous communities? Or do you think that there's, um, more formal consultations, or do you think? Uh, do you see any developments, any trends noticed in the kind of the transactions? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I'm optimistic, right? I because because what you want to do in a perfect world, mm-hmm. right, is have each indigenous community be able to decide whether it wants you know to have whether it wants to have a project or not. Um, I mean, that's the whole notion of tribal sovereignty or self-determination, um, which is principle number one in the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is the right to self-determination. Right. Um, and that means political self-determination. That means determining what happens with your lands, resources, and communities. And, I th- and, 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 and despite the fact that even today we have many situations when Indigenous communities are not, uh, are, are not being asked um, if being asked, are, 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 they're not waiting for their consent. It's better now than it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago was better than it was 20 years ago. And 20 years ago was better than it was 30 years ago. And so I think this is very important because I think sometimes we get caught in the places where we're not achieving the objective of free prior informed consent. Mm-hmm. We also should recognize the many ways in which the equities of indigenous communities are being considered and are part of the process in ways that they hadn't been in years before. Um, so I'm optimistic that we will increasingly have uh, the uh, interests of indigenous communities protected. But look, it's gonna, take, it's gonna take a lot of activism, it's gonna take a lot of lawyering, it's gonna take a lot of institutional capacity building. Yeah, I think you're right. It, is, it does kind of fall on activism a bit, doesn't it? Because you have, uh, I see a lot of it being, as you said, lip service being paid to these types of consultation proceedings. Oh, we'll give them, we'll give them a school, we'll give them hospitals, and we'll we'll donate some money to the local tribes. And then, as you say, it's a box t- box ticking exercise, but it doesn't address what needs to happen. It, it the scope is much more limited when the actual impact um, being suffered as a, as a result of the entire project. So um, it it will fall on activism in, in the short term. It sounds like precisely. But I think, I mean, it's, it, it seems like it's, it's great work. And I, I really appreciate shining a light on this because it is, 
you know, there's so many issues in investment arbitration where arbitrators themselves are not equipped to handle these these types of issues. To to ask an arbitrator over a period of a year to delve into the interpolitic self-determination of a local community is an impossible task almost, which which really questions the fairness of the the eventual outcome. So um, let this let this be a ball rolling exercise for, for yeah. the future. <laughs> no, I think I think that's that. That's absolutely uh, correct. I think that, um, you know, when we talk about institutional capacity building, it has to be on all sides, right? It has to be on the arbitrator side, the state side, the company side to have more understanding of, 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 of how these communities work that they may be um, engaging with, uh, and certainly also on the indigenous side. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Ambassador Harper. I, I appreciate you taking the time and, and uh, enlightening us on some of these issues. Yeah, good to be with you. Thank you. Money laundering. Sexy, isn't it? Um, The concept of money laundering originates from the practice of American criminal organizations in the 1920s where coin laundries or laundromats were used as a means of concealing the criminal origin of their revenues. And oh, I had no yes. idea. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and it gained a lot more prevalence in the 1980s. And it's basically the result of the creation of a lot of complex international and national legal frameworks over the last 25 years that have developed in a rather haphazard way um, and has allowed a lot of these organizations to create layering and um, to be able to, mo- to mo- launder their money in a more discreet fashion. Um, Money laundering is defined as the process by which criminals attempt to hide and disguise the true origin and ownership of the proceeds of their criminal activities and thereby avoiding prosecution, conviction, confiscation of the criminal funds. And there's usually three layers to money laundering. And I want to clue this in because this is what you have to think of when you're trying to act against it. Um, There's soaking or smurfing or placing Uh, which is aimed at putting proceeds from the criminal activity into the banking system by way of cash deposit in the local currency. Then you wash it, um, and that's separating the proceeds from their original source, so usually achieved by a series of transactions or commingling clean and dirty money. And then you dry it um, or integrate it, which is aimed at converting the washed money into legitimate investments. Mm. Um, I, too, have a quiz just, and this is not directly related to arbitration, but just to give you guys something to chew on while I discuss this further. Two of 5% of the global GDP is laundered annually. That was according to estimates of the IMF in 1998. Roughly how much would this translate to today? Either 160 billion to 400 billion dollars or 1.6 to 4 trillion dollars. What would you say? Are you asking us what two to five percent of the world GDP now is? Correct. That's what it would be now. Gosh, I've no billions or trillions. Trillions. I I would say trillions. That's correct. So it is a lot of money. Now, for you in the UK, you two in the UK, according to the UK Proceeds of Crime Act, what is the maximum custodial sentence? Meaning you can go to jail that can be imposed for money laundering and lawyers can be involved in this if they're seen as complicit. So is it 
four years or 14 years, the maximum custodial sentence? I would say 14. 14 years. So this isn't, this isn't a, um, you know, this isn't something to just scoff at. That's literally a murder sentence in Sweden. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, So, and then just to quiz you on something I just said to see if you're paying attention, inspired by the TV program with little blue people, is smurfing A, replacing incriminating words with code names, or B, outsourcing the depositing of illegal monies to multiple people? B? Correct. Like little Good, smurf, great. smurf contingent. You I know, he was just like, B? You should have just said B. B, I know, oh, B yeah. bars or whatever. Uh, I, don't, I don't have that kind of alpha <laughs> confidence that the two of you... Oh, so I just realized like, Smurf is, sorry, Smurf is Strumpf. Is that what it is? Because yeah. in French, we call them the Strumpf. I didn't realize what it was. Okay. Oh, what are they yeah. called? The Strumpf? Like the German word? Oh. The Strumpf. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Smurfs. Um, yeah. To give you some examples, um, and I'm taking this directly from an article published in the American University Law Review, um, my alma mater, um, by a- Andrew de Lotbinier McDougall, and he has given um, some examples. And one example is where criminal organizations have recourse to international arbitration as the very means of laundering their money, such as where a commercial dispute is simulated between two related corporate entities that appear on their face to be unrelated. So company A commences a fake claim for damages based on forged evidence against company B, Company A obtains an arbitral award for damages against company B. Then company B pays, but out of proceeds obtained from criminal activity. So unlike judicial proceedings, international arbitration offers at least a degree of confidentiality, the freedom to organize the proceedings and the ability to appoint arbitrators as accomplices to this. Because as we know, if you get an award paid or any money is paid by settlement, for example, it goes into your firm's client account and then is dispersed out to your client once expenses are removed and your legal fees are deducted. Um, so you really have a prime venue to be able to, to place your money. Um, and that's where it gets cleaned and then it becomes dried or integrated once it's paid out um, to your client. You remember we did a segment uh, before Sadia joined Brian on fake arbitration, where we essentially asked why why aren't people doing this more? It seems <laughs> ri- ripe and for you, abuse. <laughs> oh my gosh! Did you encourage this kind of stuff from happening? And I think what's we, going on now? I haven't listened to it, but I have a vague memory that we like hedged and caveated repeatedly, like don't do this at home, etc. But also, if you were to do it at home, this would be the way to do it. <laughs> it's probably how. <laughs> Um, Another example, maybe a bit more um, of a discrete transaction, is where a money launderer acquires commodities in a foreign country using dirty money at a price significantly higher than that offered at the spot market. The seller is so eager to sell its products at the additional margin that it's either unaware of or turns a blind eye to the dubious origin of the funds. Having acquired the commodities, the buyer resells them on its home market at the spot price. It realizes it may result in a loss to the buyer, but that's of no concern to a money launderer who's willing to take that transaction cost um, on its books. And then it becomes seemingly legitimate revenue as a result. And there's been loads of cases like this happening 
daily. Um, and also recently, I know in Sweden, there was a big case uh, that Mannheimer represented. And it has, you have to have control over your entire line. So if you're a big international conglomerate and you are working in various different countries that have very loose, quote, facilitation payments in order to gain a tender, for example, or to win a bid, and that's considered customary, who's responsible for that. So you have this intersection between, you know, business and human rights and, and mm -hmm. also um, anti-money laundering reg regulations extending to all of your subsidiaries and their, and their business practices in different jurisdictions. And Joel, you know, uh, you were kept up to date on a, a recent case involving a fake arbitration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good, yeah, good point. Because we mentioned that case as it was evolving. I think that was maybe even the starting point for the fake arbitration segment we did back in yes. 2018. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, we, we don't have to name names here, even though we now have a conviction. So I'm a little bit more comfortable discussing it on the fly than I was earlier. But there's a well-known arbitration lawyer was actually sentenced to three years in prison by a Swiss court just the other week or a couple of weeks ago. Um, for a, a fake arbitration. We kept saying alleged fake arbitration <laughs> way back when. I guess now we can take some comfort in the fact that a Swiss court has already rendered a judgment. Although I don't know if it is final and it will presumably be appealed. I don't think, I don't have the details, so I'm not going to be able to share a lot with you or the listeners, but I don't think it was a money laundering. It was more of an evidence laundering scheme. The lawyer right. in question was sentenced uh, because the court found that he had written an award, had someone else, uh, an associate or a colleague of his, also an arbitration lawyer, uh, show up as arbitrator and sign the award. Then that award was uh, enforced or recognized in several courts in order to launder some evidence. And I'm using launder with air quotes here. They basically, they wanted evidence that they couldn't use in court to, to get a, like a legitimate uh, source. And by recognizing mm -hmm. and enforcing an arbitral award, which presumably said a lot of nice things about the evidence, admitted the evidence and authenticated its, its, its authenticity, they could rely on that award in other contexts uh, in order to have the evidence cleared, so to speak. But obviously mm -hmm. you, you could have done the same with with money. And I think in the fake arbitration segment, we talked about ways to do this. Uh, you just also mentioned some, Brian. But this was also, we, we started with the Dubai news that sort of broke the world of arbitration and everyone was talking about it for a couple of days. This was also a big thing that an arbitration lawyer has now been sentenced by a Swiss court to three years in, in prison for faking an award uh, wow. on behalf of his clients. Yeah, I mean, that that is very big news, to be honest. So that was three years in prisons only. Yes. <laughs> that, okay. And I, and that hasn't even under, and that hasn't uncovered what was really underlying the transaction between company A and company B. I presume there are two companies in that, in that case. And that, um, well, this is, I mean, this been, is, it's is complete, this is very sexy and juicy, but also I, I don't know enough to speak confidently about it, but it, it relates to like a political fight and, uh, infighting, uh, between, uh, sheikhs, sheikhs in Kuwait, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And according to what I read from the court, this arbitral award was, as you say, actually, in fact, between two companies, but there were connections to the people now convicted. And I think one of the companies had been right. started in Delaware, like just before the award was rendered. And the legal owner of the company was like the driver of uh, the sheikh who was now also convicted alongside his lawyer. 
Right. Yeah, I've I and this hasn't even the the case disappeared, so I don't even know where it went. But I was presented with a case where it was a representative of the individual that you know you haven't met or you met only on a video call or just heard audio of that person, and the representative says that they wanted to initiate an investment treaty claim against the state. Um, but it was ripe for settlement. This is going to settle in two seconds. And then you're like, well, why don't you settle? And they yeah. say, well, a state can't pay out. Usually there are you know, terms on when a state can pay out money to an individual or a corporation based off certain allegations or claims against it. And sometimes they can only pay out if there is a claim initiated. And so what they'll do is try to initiate a claim. The state pays out of money in terms of settlement so they can justify it to their taxpayers that they're paying this big sum of money. And then that representative is actually linked back to the government. And there's, um, so basically it's a way to funnel money out of the government coffers and then back into the, you know, the, the people and the individuals in charge so that they can have that money laundered through the arbitration. So it does come up. So what do we do? And, you know, there are regulations. Yeah. I was going to ask ask you, what are you guys Mm -hmm. doing? Not you guys specifically, what, what, what are like practicing lawyers doing in order to identify and avoid all these risks? Since this is a a happy fun time segment after all, like how does this affect the everyday working life of lawyers at law firms? So in the UK, you can't start a case unless you run proper due diligence. And there are um, regulations and there's a 2017 regulation in the UK that is applicable to independent legal professionals and firms and sole practitioners um, to regulate what type of due diligence and assessment of risk these individuals and firms have to take to show that they're at least doing their part to detach themselves from any appearance that they're becoming accomplices in a potential money laundering scheme. Um, there's, so you have to have not only systems and policies in place within your firm that are published policies that are distributed, but each and every one of the practitioners that is involved in providing legal services under your firm name has to go through training um, in order to identify these types of red flags and in order to combat against these red flags. Um, and so you have like a checklist that you have to go through and you have to go through certain client due, client due diligence procedures. And those will depend on the type of transaction, the type of jurisdictions at play here. Are they um, you know, jurisdictions that are typically known for money laundering according to certain you know, metrics? Um, or is this the type of transaction? Is it a risk-sensitive subject matter? Commodities, for example, financial services, for example, um, and you also need to look at the beneficial owners of the company. If a company is bringing a case to you, who is actually the beneficial owner to stand to benefit from the award rendered uh, rendered for these claims? You can't just have a representative of the company who's just a business legal representative of the in-house counsel, and then you bring the claim, and but you realize that the 25% owner is you know, Al Capone. You need to make sure that you are identifying where the money's going to actually go to. Um, And so there are questions that you have to put in place and there's different. So not only is it recognizing the identification of the actual client or the beneficial owner of the claims, but it can go through certain layers. So whether you're going to do simplified due diligence, which is getting a picture of their passport and, you know, information on the company, or is it enhanced or there's normal due diligence as well, which is getting two forms of verification of identification and getting, you know, all the company records or enhanced due diligence. And that's 
the top tier level, and I'm only speaking from the UK, what's what's regulated. Um, and that enhanced due diligence is, you know, taking one step further from your the normal due diligence. And that's really getting into the financial um, financials of the company, um, getting the entire business structure and getting all the information on the transaction and the underlying transactions. Um, and that can take a lot of time. And this is kind of where we'll get into a discussion, which is you get a case before you, we're all desperate to get new business. The last thing you want to do is test your client or make them send you all these identification documents. So they say, can, or it's time sensitive. We need this now, or, you, you know, the fees are really high and you just get blinded by all of this, but you, there are regulations in place with 14 years of custodial sentence facing you on the other side, if you don't follow them and, yeah. and you have to train everyone to be able to spot these. And some of them look like textbook red flags where, you know, some, you know, someone from, some like East African saint saying, send me $10,000. We've all received that email on your Gmail, send me $10,000 so I can release money yeah. to you. You know, and that's the easy one to notice, but some of these are really, really complex transactions and changes of ownership in the company structure that when you actually lift the veil of it, they're all connected and they all own each other's companies. And so on its face, you're really just bringing a a simple contract claim on the behalf of an organization, but that is actually linked to something entirely different. Also, when you work um, with, you know, depending with states or even non-states um, in, in certain region, Africa being one, but there are many others, of course, <clears throat> you deal with a lot of people with Yahoo emails, Gmail emails. You're like, why why don't you have right. a professional email account? And and the thing is, it's, you know, it happens so often, doesn't it? I mean, it happens to us a lot. And uh, you see those also in our big arbitration claims. And um, But as, as Brian was saying, you know, concretely speaking, Joel, um, when you have a, a new case, a new client, um, there's certain forms that you have to open uh, within the firm. So there's a separate department that deals with all of this. So they're alert. They're alerted. There, there's a new file opening. There's a new client, and they will scan through, you know, the, you know, everything that Brian is telling you. It's not like we. I mean, of course, we have to look out for red flags, like Brian says, but you normally have support and um, it's kind of like a, it's firms, a at least. terrible analogy, but it's kind of like a conflict check as well that has to. Be yeah. It, no, it's not. It's not a terrible analogy. Because it happens at the same time, actually, for us. It's right. the same time when I send in a conflict check, then they also check this whole stuff. And then they tell me, you know, the traffic like system, whether I have to go through, I have to ask for this document, that document, if this is okay, if this high risk, low risk and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think at bigger firms, it's much easier because you send it off to your compliance department. There's a compliance mm -hmm. officer who checks any issues you might have and signs off on it um, and mm -hmm. says, okay, I've checked it. It's fine. And then everyone's covered. Mm -hmm. um, but with smaller firms that don't have that built in, that's put on the independent practitioner to that's go right. through that mm -hmm. those checks and make sure that you know we have someone who audits us regularly to, to go through our files and say okay have you done all the mm -hmm. checks that need that need to be done i mean we're we're trained in this in a very generic sense but mm -hmm. the people in Saudi's department work with this and that's their job and so they have full time can like search through google and see all you know anything that has to do with these companies and um and there's credit reports that you can get on these companies but those you have to pay for so you really just have to go on 
yeah. instinct and the the regulations in order to be compliant. But I, and we're so you know, mean to them too, right, Brian? Because this happens when you need a response right away to mm-hmm. the client. We're about to sign the deal. We're like, come on, do it quickly. Why is it taking so long? Yep. Why are you taking yep. 24 hours to do a conflict check and a, you know, anti-modeling check? They're like, uh, this is complicated. There are like 10 different entities that are controlled by right. 15 different entities <laughs> on 13 jurisdiction. Um, and it's also so as <laughs> to avoid that Sadia Bati ends up in jail for 14 years. Yeah, exactly. That's the, and the, the justification. Rest of my partner, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, she'll be covered for sure. It'll be the compliance officer who signed off on it. That's going to have to really, really face it. But, you know, her job is to raise the flags and then, you know, her yeah, firm takes the decision. Right. Um, but it, you're, that's, that's exactly the point. And it's, it's the, the point of where it like impedes business and impedes progress of your firm. And, and in actuality, it is something very serious to, to take on board when you discuss these things. And you have to have an analytical eye to really, you know, kick the tires is my, one of my favorite expressions. You have to kick the tires on some of these things and not go in with doe eyes and say, you know, I, I trust everyone. You have to kind of in your initial client contact, get some of this information. Oh, we've invested it in the mine. Okay. Where, where did that money come from? You know, mm-hmm. um, who's, who's in charge of this? Who's in charge on the ground in, in the country you invested it in? What's the investment vehicle that's invested in this country? Cause usually these are holding companies um, that they've purchased mm-hmm. on the, you know, the, the stock market that are just shell companies that they've purchased and funneled money to in order to invest in the mine and everything looks above board in that country. But where did the money come from? And that's something you have to ask. And they, they think it's so inconsequential to, to what they're talking about. And, it, and in, in the context of the dispute, it is inconsequential, but in the context of us protecting ourselves and not being complicit in a scheme, it, it's, it's really relevant and um, something serious to consider. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, do we so start the so season happy. exactly with a serious happy fun time? I know <laughs> a threat. We start the season with a threat. Second episode, yeah. very happy, happy fun time. Let's agree. Okay. Maybe Our even favorite in, in cigars. Yes. <laughs> promise. That's a promise. Thank yeah. you, Brian. Though I think it's a very important topic, so thanks for raising it. It is indeed. Thanks. We're educational as well. It's not just happy fun time. It's also educational time on this podcast. There we go. Like my mother said when she raised me, <laughs> <laughs> every day school is fun. <laughs> thank you, Dmitry Mednikov, for your research, and thank you, Jan Kunster, for uh, keeping us all hardworking and mildly functioning. And thank you, guys. Nice to see you again. Glad we're embarking on another season. That's right. Yeah, thanks, guys. Lovely to be back. It is indeed. Take care. Maybe see you in person soon. And Brian, enjoy your in-person cocktails in London's arbitration world tonight. I'll let you know how it goes. Cheers. Bye.